following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Thanks to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. For no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come into this place today and we've gathered for a very distinct and real purpose. We've come to worship you. We've come to exalt you. We've come to praise your holy name and to worship you for all that you are and all that you've done and all that you continue to do. And we recognize this morning that we were able to wake up in our homes and we were able to drive cars that we own, and we were able to come freely to this location and enter into this building. And freely we're able to proclaim the gospel of your Son, Jesus. We're able to worship you in spirit and in truth. We're able to fellowship in your name. And we're able to do so freely. Lord, I confess that in my own heart and I suspect in the Hearts of my friends, we often take that freedom for granted. We're mindful this morning that there are many, many, many people around this world who would have no hope of such a thing this morning, who live in fear, who live in impressive places where the gospel is not welcomed and where worship publicly is simply not an option if you value your life. And yet, Lord, you've blessed us with such things. You've blessed us with a great nation, and for that we are immensely grateful. We're thankful for our country. We're thankful for the freedoms that you've blessed us with here. And yet we recognize, Lord, that those freedoms have not come without cost. There are many men, women, throughout the history of this great nation who have paid the price for our freedom with their own bodies, their own lives. Paying the ultimate sacrifice is that we might be free and we might maintain the freedom that we enjoy. Father, we're humbled by that thought. We are um, immensely grateful in our hearts for those who have sacrificed in such a way. And yet, in our gratitude, Lord, we also weep with those who sense that loss in very real ways this weekend even. For families who have had to say goodbye to those they've loved, for friends, for fellow service members, 
who this weekend remember those who once living are now dead. We pray, Lord, for them. We pray that you would cover them by your grace, that they would sense your abiding presence even this morning. That whatever gaps are left behind, Lord, you would fill them by your sweet mercy and by your abundant provision. And we're mindful this morning that even as we exercise our freedom, that there are many thousands who continue to serve us in the armed forces who are spread all over the world, standing post even now, many in harm's way. We pray that even today you would protect them, surround them by your presence, that they would feel even your presence wherever they might be today. May they sense that they are valued by us. And Lord, as we turn our attention to you this morning and as we think about your kingdom, it's fitting that you would use, by the words of the Apostle Paul, a soldier as an example of what it means to to live and work in your kingdom. Lord, help us to be faithful to the calling you've placed on us in your kingdom. Help us to be courageous as we go about the work that you've called us to do. Help us to not be afraid of men. Help us to faithfully execute the calling you've placed upon our lives. To take your gospel into a world that desperately needs it. Give us such opportunities, Lord. And give us the courage to take them when you bring them our way. Thankful immensely for the freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Freedom to live without fear of condemnation for our God. Because our sins have been washed away. The sacrificial blood of you, Lord Jesus. We are immensely grateful for that this morning. We would have no hope apart from you. And so we've come and we've gathered... We've lifted our voices and now we turn our attention to your holy word. We pray that as we open it and as we study it, O Lord, that you would speak to us loud and clear. That you would give us, Lord, exactly what we need to hear. That you would call us to faithfulness. That you would challenge us in areas of our life that need a challenge. That you'd encourage us where we need encouragement. Help us to meet you in your word in this place this morning. Our brother John, who comes to preach it, we pray for your grace, for your power, for your anointing, for your word to be alive and well and spoken clearly through him this morning to us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was away this week, the last two weeks, somewhere along the way, it dawned on me that this week was my 20th anniversary as pastor. Somebody had asked me how long I had been at my church, and I had to think about it, start adding up the years. And I told them, well, this month was 20 years. And um, they looked at me awfully funny. I said I started when I was 12, so they, they really looked at me funny then. Um, but I had some time to reflect on that while I was away. And, boy, it's, um, uh, in a sense, it seems like it was just yesterday that it was 1995 and I was fresh and green right out of Charleston Southern University, uh, thinking I knew everything but really knowing nothing um, except how to breathe and to walk and a few other things, write a paper here and there. Um, 
but then on the other hand, it seems like a really long time. And uh, it's been remarkable to be a part of what God's been doing in this body for, for two decades. And I'm looking out right now and I'm seeing some faces out there that, uh, that have been there along the way for all those 20 years. Uh, Judy and, and John Owens and uh, Pat Now and uh, where's Ethel? I know she and Raymond are around here somewhere in the back. And Linda... If you were here 20 years ago in 1995, would you just like stand up or something so I can identify you and not have to dig around? Praise the Lord for you. <laughs> Let me give you a hand. Um, thank you. Okay, you can be seated. Thank you for not firing me when I did stupid things along the way in those two decades. And uh, thank you for not leaving. Um, so grateful for you and for your support and for all of those who have been a part of the journey along the way. Um, and, you know, I, one of the things that's remarkable is I think back to, to even, you know, as early as, you know, five or six or seven years ago. And if I had to be away or I was going to be gone for the better part of a week and I needed someone to preach, I had to look long and hard to find somebody from the outside to come in and preach. And uh, what a blessing that these days uh, it's not hard to find someone because God has brought people to this body who are more than capable of opening up his word and teaching and, and preaching his word to us. And to, this morning we have just such a privilege. Uh, John Settlemeyer doesn't need much introduction. If you've been around Grace on the Ashley much, you, um, you know John and Janice and their sweet family. Uh, but uh, John, if you don't know him, is a good friend. He uh, is a, an active duty chaplain in the Navy. He serves currently at the, the Navy Brig. Uh, so you don't ever want to see him at his duty station unless you're a guest from the outside coming in and leaving. Um, but he serves faithfully preaching God's word. Even this morning earlier, uh, was headed out to the Brig with a sermon prepared to deliver there. And uh, he comes now to open God's word and to teach us. So would you just welcome uh, my friend and our faithful servant, John, to come. Good morning, church. Boy, it's a, it's a joy to be here today. Um, it's always a privilege to stand here uh, in this pulpit uh, knowing that uh, we are a congregation that is so blessed to hear God's word proclaimed so faithfully week in and week out. What a joy that is. And um, I was talking to Tim a little earlier and he said, you know, you never you don't recognize how how good we have it when it comes to hearing God's word taught until you go away for a few weeks. And then you realize, wow, you know, I've really missed that. So I'm thankful to be a part of this church uh, for our pastors who teach God's word faithfully and who love uh, each and every one of us. So 20 years, that's amazing. Uh, the average tenure for a Southern Baptist pastor in the SBC is about three and a half, maybe four years. So, uh, wow, that's amazing. Praise God. Praise God for that. Thank you for your service. If you have your Bibles this morning, let me encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 8. I was having a conversation with Miss Judy a few weeks ago, and uh, she said to me, she said, John, the next time that you have the opportunity to preach, would you talk about adoption? And I said, well, I'll, you know, I'll think about that. I'll pray about that. And, and uh, so today, um, we're going to look at the gratuitous mercy of adoption, the gratuitous mercy of of adoption. Currently in the world there are 144 million orphans. 
That is not quite half the population of the United States of America, but it's more than a third. 144 million. It's a staggering number, isn't it? But we know that the Word of God tells us that God cares deeply for the needs of the most helpless among us. And orphans certainly qualify. They certainly do matter to God, do they not? In the book of James, we read that true and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to do what? To care for the widows and the orphans, right? Jesus used the analogy of orphans in John chapter 14, which is where we would be if I were not preaching this morning. When he said to the disciples, as he's preparing them for his departure, as he's getting ready to go away from them, he said to them, I will not leave you as what? As orphans. He used the analogy of someone helpless, someone who needs somebody to come and to guide them and to love them. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used the theme of what Jesus said in John 14 to talk about the relationship that believers have with God. The theme of God as our Father runs throughout the New Testament, doesn't it? When Jesus rose from the dead and he was speaking to Mary Magdalene, for the very first time ever, he referred to the apostles. He said, go and tell my brothers that I go to my God and my Father and your God and your Father. Throughout the New Testament, we read of God as our Father. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. The New Testament is, is absolutely full of verse after verse and passage after passage of God declaring to us that He is our Father. And no more... No place else in the New Testament is it more beautifully displayed than in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be focused in on about four verses, verses 14 to 17, but for the sake of context and so that we can kind of set the table for what we're going to be looking at this morning, I'm going to begin reading in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and I'll read all the way down through verse 17. And because I am getting up there, I need my reading glasses to do this. These are my Arkansas Razorback reading glasses, by the way. (laughs) Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for your word. It's life and it's peace and it's truth. I pray that as we look into these scriptures today, that you will speak to our hearts. We need to hear from you this morning, Father. So we pray that you will do a mighty work here among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the the overarching theme of Romans chapter 8 is our assurance. And when you read through the book of Romans, if you go chapter by chapter and read it from the beginning, you, by the time you get to chapter 8, you kind of need Paul to talk about assurance. Because in Romans chapter 6, Paul uses terms like we are dead to sin. And he says, let therefore sin no longer reign in your mortal bodies. And you, you compare what God's word says to the way that you live your life and you think, I don't measure up to that. I need some assurance. Do I, do I belong to God? Is, what, is, what is going on in my life? And then you get to chapter 7, and Paul gives us a description of himself that is so familiar that each and every one of us could have written this ourselves. When he says in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, I do not, for, I do what I, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but what? Not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Is that not the story of our lives? Because we recognize when we read that our own sinful inability to keep the demands of Romans 6. And then we look in the mirror of Romans 7. When we get to Romans 8, we need Paul to give us something positive. We need a little assurance. So Romans 8 begins with my favorite verse in the entire New Testament. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. This is one of the most loved and, and beloved passages in the Bible for that very reason. Paul says, even though we regularly do the things we don't want to do, and even though we regularly fail to do the things that we want to do, are supposed to do, there's still no condemnation for us. Yes, he says, that is the truth. It begins with no condemnation in chapter 8, and the chapter ends with that glorious uh, passage that says there's no separation either. Not only is there no condemnation in Christ, but when we come to the end of our lives, we are assured that if we belong to Jesus, there is nothing that we can do. There is nothing that we have ever done in our past that's going to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's love for his people is irrevocable. And the one who began that good work in you is going to bring it to completion And the day of Christ Jesus. Some of the richest theological truths found in all the word of God are in this one particular chapter. Verse 1 speaks about our justification. The process by which God credits to our account his righteousness. The righteousness of the sinless life of Jesus who suffered and died and rose again to pay the penalty for our sins. To redeem us back to God. For those who are in Christ, this means that all of our sins, past, present, and future, were cast as far as the east is from the west, and we stand before God righteous, declared righteous. That's justification. And if that was all that God did for us, He would be worthy of our praise, wouldn't He? If that was all that God did was to justify us and put us in a right standing before him so that when we died, we didn't go to hell, that would be glorious. And he would be worthy of every bit of the worship and the praise that he demands of us, that we desire to give to him. But wait, there's more. There's much, much more. Romans 8 also speaks about our sanctification, doesn't it? It talks about the fact that we, uh, once we are justified, once we are made right before God, we then are able to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about that in, in a moment, we're able to live a life of righteousness, to live a life of obedience, and to do the things that God commands us to do. We are, because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to say yes to the things that God calls us to. We're able to say no to the things that God tells us to stay away from, to our flesh. Verse 9 declares that those who are justified are in the Spirit. We're in the Spirit. And then begins a section on sanctification. Verse 10 says that the Spirit is life because of the righteousness of Christ that we have in our justification. Verse 11 says that that same Spirit that brought Jesus back from the grave gives life to our mortal bodies. And verse 12 and verse 13 describe how we are to live our lives based upon our justification in Christ and our sanctification through the Spirit. Then verse 13 says this, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you 
will live. You will live. So Paul begins Romans 8 with a description of our justification. And then grace upon grace, he adds to our understanding of the gift of justification, the gift of sanctification, where the Spirit graciously, lovingly, and patiently causes us to bear fruit by affecting in our bodies, in our spirit, in our lives, a change in every part of his being. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says something very much uh, about that when he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, God prepared beforehand that we walk in the truth and in those things that he has called us to do. That life of holiness that we call sanctification. Every single believer, and we'll see this again when we come to verse 14. Every single believer by the Spirit does grow in grace. Every one of us. We are all, if you are a child of God, you are a fruit bearer. You have sanctification. It's a daily struggle, just like he says in Romans 7. But Paul's going to tell us in this passage of Scripture, in these verses beginning in verse 14 and following, Paul's going to tell us that it's our position in Christ that allows us, that aids us, and frees us to obey the Spirit's leading as we walk in obedience and try to walk in righteousness towards Him. See, that position that we have in Christ, that position that we have before God, is the third major theological term that Paul is going to describe. It's the third major thing that Paul is going to tell us about our relationship to God. He's talked about justification. He's talked about sanctification. Now, Paul's going to turn our attention to the doctrine of adoption. And that's what we see in verse 14 and following. J.I. Packer said that our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of our adoption. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. I called this message the gratuitous mercy of adoption. It's a term I borrowed from John Calvin when he talks about the relationship that we have before God in adoption. Now, that word adoption only occurs five times in the entire New Testament. All of them were from Paul. It doesn't occur at all in the Old Testament. The Hebrews had no understanding, had no, that, that was not a part of their culture. It was a very Roman thing, adoption was in Paul's day. Three times in Romans, two in Romans chapter 8, one in chapter 9, and then Paul also wrote, writes in Galatians chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 1 about adoption. It's a compound word in the Greek, and literally what it means is placement as a son. Placement as a son. It was a legal term in the first century. And what it meant was for someone who was not born to a particular father would receive all the benefits of being a son to that father. So in the first century, you would have a a large group of witnesses. Usually it required seven. And there was a legal document that you signed and filled out saying that this individual is now part of my family. And then because of that, was worthy to receive all the benefits of someone who is now uh, my heir. That's what adoption was 
in the first century. So I want us to see this morning in these verses five promises that God makes to his adopted children. Five promises that we have due to the fact that God the Father has adopted us and brought us into his family. The first one is in verse 14. Our adoption promises us a supernatural influence. Supernatural influence. Verse 14 again says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We have a supernatural influence through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of times when you read that verse, people will take that, all who are led by the Spirit of God, and they'll use it to to try to answer some of the big questions in life. Now, for most men, as I when I was younger, when I was growing up, I had three big questions in life that I wanted answer to. And when I would read that verse, I would think, okay, if the Spirit of God is leading me, then I need to know the answer to three things. Number one, what am I going to do with my life? Number two, which was much more important to me, who am I going to marry? Right? Number three, for most guys, what are we having for dinner tonight? That was my third third major question that's not what Paul is referring to when he says being led by the spirit R.C. Sproul famously said he always gets asked about when people ask come to him and they ask him about what's God's will for my life what does God want me to do who does God want me to marry should I marry Jane should I marry Mary who which, who am I supposed to marry what is God's will for my life and usually what he, he says my response is always this that's none of your business it's none of your business What Paul is talking about here is not what are God's plans for my life, for my future. What he's talking about is a controlling direction away from sin and towards righteousness. All who are led by the Spirit means all who are directed away from sin. All who are directed away from the things that that we, by our flesh, naturally would go towards, towards those things that God has called us to. To do. In other words, the Holy Spirit directs every one of God's children towards holiness. That's what the Spirit does. Because of our justification and by the Spirit's direction, the bondage of sin is broken. We're emancipated from sin and we are no longer slaves to live according to the flesh. And the Holy Spirit's job, what He does when He comes to dwell within us, is He directs us and points us in the right direction towards holiness and righteousness. That's what Paul's saying there in verse 14. The Greek word for led, all who are led by the Spirit of God, means a determining control over our actions. Let me show you some, some ways it's used other places in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is preparing for the, uh, the Passover meal, and he goes to the disciples, he says, Go to, to the, this house I'm going to tell you to, and there you'll find a donkey that's never been ridden on. I want you to go and bring that donkey, lead that donkey to me. Well, the word lead there, where the disciples led the donkey, that's the same word that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 8. 
It's the use of the story of the Good Samaritan where he took that man who had been beaten and left for dead and he put him on his animal and he led him to the place where he could get healing. Jesus in Acts chapter 8 to refer to Jesus when Philip is speaking of the, to the Ethiopian eunuch and he reads for him from the Old Testament where Isaiah says um, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Now, when you lead someone like a sheep to the slaughter, does that mean you invite them to come with you and you ask them to join you? No. It is you are directing their steps, isn't it? The word conveys the idea of control and of a real determining influence of the outcome of the destination. The Holy Spirit doesn't just suggest in your ear that you do the right thing when, it, when temptation comes. The Holy Spirit doesn't just, just invite you to come along with them as He walks towards righteousness. The Holy Spirit takes us by the reins, so to speak, and He leads us along in the ways that He's called us to go. He doesn't suggest, but He pulls us Along, He takes the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. You remember that, you know that song? He takes the wheel and he directs the car the way that he wants us to go. An early 20th century theologian named B.B. Warfield wrote this. We were slaves to sin. A new power has entered into us to break that bondage. But not only that we should be set rudderless, adrift on the ocean of life, but that we should be powerfully directed on a better course, leading us to a better harbor. Amen. That's the process of sanctification. That's what it is. This verse tells us that the power that we have to do anything good whatsoever comes from the Holy Spirit. It's not from you. Certainly not from me. The power that you have to do anything good, anything righteous, anything worthy of praise comes from the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Why is that important? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, those things happen so that no flesh will glory in his presence. When we get to heaven... We're not going to be comparing my crown and your versus your crown. You're going to have more jewels in your crown. You remember that old song, will there be any stars in my crown? We're not going to be counting them. Oh, I have more than you. I'm not going to do that. Because everything that we've done here that matters significantly for the kingdom of God, it's not because of us. It's what the Holy Spirit has done in us. This is a perfect, perfect illustration of what Paul says in Philippians 2, uh, verse 12, where he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who what works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The desire to do what is right and the actual doing of what is right are gifts from the Holy Spirit. We act in cooperation with the Spirit to obey God's commands, to obey His Word. The Spirit directs us. The Spirit drives us on. But we actually have to do the work. This is not something He's going to carry you along. You actually have to take the step and do those right 
things. It is a cooperative way of God transforming us by following after the commands that He's called us to do. He does that through the illumination of God's Word. He does it through outside influences, people who come into our lives to, to teach us, to, to, to have that iron sharpening iron, to have people show us how they live, to model after. The Spirit does those things to, that are going to change us and make us more like Jesus. He does that because we are adopted children. Adoption promises us a supernatural influence. Number two, in verse 15, adoption promises us a fearless intimacy with the Father. Verse 15 again says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He's saying that when you receive the Holy Spirit, He doesn't put you into subjection. He doesn't make you cower in fear. If He wanted to, He could do that, couldn't He? He doesn't do that. He could force us into servitude if He wants to. And you know, there are many people in our culture, many people in the world who see God that way. They see God as just someone who is standing up in heaven waiting for you to step out of line. And once you do, boy, you're going to get it. That's the parent's job. So people will say something like this. You'll invite them to church. Have you ever invited somebody to church and they'll say something like this? If I step into that building, the roof is going to cave in. That's the dumbest thing in the world. You think God needs you to walk into the church so he can find you? If he's mad at you, he wants to get you? Of course not. Right? And God doesn't do that. Aren't you glad he doesn't? If God did act that way, none of us would be here this morning, would we? Not a one of us. He says, God does not give you a spirit of fear to fall back into bondage. What he's talking about there is at the beginning of the chapter, he talks about the bondage to the law. In the Old Testament, the Jews were under such incredible bondage to the law that they could hardly take a step outside without being afraid that they would break some of God's laws. I had a conversation with a rabbi one time, and he said to me that um, that when they think about God, they are terrified of him. Because they have so many laws, so many ways that they could step out of line, so many ways, and they think that God is like that. They think He's just waiting to come and get them for anything they did that was wrong. That is not what Paul is describing here. 
He says, you've not received that spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. Here's that glorious truth of the doctrine of adoption. Justification is a legal declaration whereby we're declared righteous and our guilty sentence is changed from guilty to not guilty based solely on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But adoption is something gloriously more than that. God becomes no longer a judge who accepts us based upon the righteousness of Christ, but now he becomes a loving father who takes us into his family and grants us all the rights and the privileges and the blessings of his only begotten son. This is not God just letting us in some, you know, and go stand in the corner over there, but you can come in. No. This is God welcoming us into His arms. This is God taking us in and granting to us the exact same rights, privileges, and honor that are given to His only begotten Son. That, my friends, is glorious. The judge of all the earth comes alongside and says, Not only are you not guilty, come home with me. I will make you my child. J.I. Packer again says that this truth, this verse is the climax of the entire Bible. This is the climax of the message of the gospel. Because of our adoption, we can call him father. Paul uses an Aramaic term here. It's the only place in Romans where you'll find an Aramaic term, the word Abba. Why does he use an Aramaic term? He's writing to people who don't read it. He doesn't, it's not a common language. It wasn't the language that Paul spoke. He uses the Aramaic word Abba there because he wanted to remind his readers and remind us of something that happened back in Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's struggling. He tells the disciples, my soul is greatly distressed. And he says to them, you stay here and I'll go over there and pray. And he prays, and he lifts up his head towards heaven, and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Let this cup pass from me. Remember that? So when Jesus uses the word Abba, it's not a, 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 the sound of a little child reaching up to, to their daddy with joy, but it is a desperate cry of someone wanting their father to intervene and to save them. And Paul uses that term here. He says, not only is God Father... But the intimacy that Jesus had there in the garden is the same that we have with Him today. Abba, Father. How many non-Christians do you know? Not talking about non-Christians who attend church on a regular basis at some some other place, but people who don't, who are nons, they don't believe in anything, they don't go to church anymore. How many Christians, how many non-Christians do you know who ever refer to God as Father? Not a one. You'll never hear them say that. They'll call Him God. Usually they'll have a last name at the end of that. They will call him the man upstairs 
You've heard of other things they use to describe God, but none of them call him father. Because he's not their father. They don't understand that relationship. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, he's not your father. He's your judge. Whenever Jesus prayed in the New Testament, whenever you hear Jesus praying in the Gospels, every time but once he uses the term father in his prayers. That had never been done before. They had never heard anybody pray like that before. No one in the Old Testament ever spoke to God as Father. They talked about Him as the Father, as a generic, the Father of us all, the Father of Israel. But nobody ever spoke to Him with the title as they addressed Him as Father until Jesus did it. And then He tells His disciples to pray that way, doesn't He? Redemption has been accomplished through the blood of Jesus. He's opened the way for us to be adopted into his family. God is now our father. And we can call him Abba. I have a friend who, whenever he prays, um, he doesn't begin his prayers by saying father. He begins his prayer by saying dad. I find that very interesting. We have that intimacy with Him. Adoption means that we can cry out to God. We can run into His presence with our pain. We can run into our presence in our joy. We can cry out, Abba, Father. Puritan by the name of Thomas Watson said this, We have enough in us to move God to correct us, but there's nothing to move Him to adopt us. Therefore, exalt His free grace. Begin the work of angels here. Bless Him with your praises. He has blessed you in making you His son and His daughter. Adoption promises a supernatural influence. It promises us fearful, fearless intimacy. And it promises absolute certainty. Look at verse 16. Running out of time. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit Himself bears witness with with our spirit that we are the children of God. We have the absolute certainty of our new relationship with our Father. In Roman culture, you needed seven witnesses to ratify an adoption. Having gone through an adoption... Now you need 7,000 pieces of paper to ratify an adoption. Paul is saying in verse 16 that our adoption is certain because of the testimony of one person, and that is the Holy Spirit. Derek Thomas says, when the Holy Spirit comes to make His home in us, He comes with grace in both hands. He makes our adoption certain. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit guarantees that we belong to Him. Calvin called the Holy Spirit the adopter. 
That's what he does. This is why Romans 8, verse 1, is such a precious, priceless promise. There's no condemnation because the Spirit works to testify to our spirit that we are the children of God so that we have been granted that no condemnation status with Him. John Piper said, God does not leave us in the condition of aliens when he adopts us. He doesn't leave us with no feelings of acceptance and love. Rather, he pours his spirit into our hearts to give us the experience of being embraced in the family. That's what he does. Number four, verse 17, adoption promises us a glorious inheritance. A glorious inheritance. Verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. He calls us heirs of God. Now that could mean one of two things. It could mean that we are His heirs and we inherit all that God has. That would be great. Because God has everything. And the Bible says that Jesus will inherit all things, right? All things were made for him. He will inherit all things. But I think he's saying something else when he says that we are heirs of God. Psalm 73, verse 25 says, Who am I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When Paul calls us heirs of God, I think what he had in mind was that we will inherit God himself. That we will enter into his presence and we will be with him for all time. That is our glorious inheritance. Ezekiel 44:28 says this, This shall be their inheritance. I am their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus will one day inherit the glory of God, the vision of it, the the participation in it, and the enjoyment of God Himself. That is our inheritance because we are His adopted children. Praise God. Lastly, the end of verse 17. Adoption promises us effectual pain. Wait. Everything was good before this. Effectual pain. Adoption leads to suffering? Really? Yes, it absolutely does. Suffering is another proof of our adoption. Pain is part of the process. It's part of the process. But we're promised that the pain that we must endure, the pain that millions of martyrs have endured, that thousands have endured this very year, That pain is effectual, that it will do the work that God has for it to do and intended for it to do. 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. I told you that in chapter 8, Paul uses the word adoption one other time. It's in verse 23. And he says this, we wait eagerly for the consummation of our adoption. See, we're already God's children positionally, but we're not yet 
home. When we adopted our daughter, she became our child long before she was home. And she was home long before she met her father. I was on deployment when she came home. So positionally, she was my child, but we never seen each other face to face. But, but, but then we did. But one day we did. One day, you and I, God's adopted children, will enter into the presence of our Father. Until that day, we look around and we see the world in chaos and fear and pain. The whole creation groans. So we cry out, Abba, Father, deliver us, save us from this world. We rejoice because God has delivered us, His children, He's made us His own. Let me say one more thing about adoption and then we're done. The first time I ever saw my daughter was a photograph that they sent us from the adoption agency. It was a beautiful little picture of a girl. She was, she had her hair all done up, big brown eyes, uh, and a beautiful little white dress that they had her in. How could you not fall in love with somebody that looked like that? It was easy. That's not what God does when He adopts us. God looks at us and He sees us as we really are. Rebellious, broken, Dirty, filthy, not getting any better. And he adopts us into our family, into his family. And he brings us together. And he makes us his child. That also means if I'm the son of God Almighty and you're the son of God Almighty, that means you and I our brothers and sisters. Let's not forget that. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful for your mercy and your grace that you pour upon your children. We're so grateful that you have called us to be your children. You have adopted us into your family. And all the promises and the blessings and the standing that goes with that, Father, we can't even begin this morning to comprehend and to fathom the depth of what all that means. But we rejoice and long for the day when we will enter into your presence and enter into the joy of our Father. Father, for those who are here today who do not know you, who've never trusted in Christ for salvation, we pray that today you would touch them with the power of the Holy Spirit, awaken them to new life so that they can understand the hope and the joy that we have in Jesus. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.